0: It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com slash Hour. The key to
1: working with fear is becoming mindful of the fact that it's arising, become accepting of the fear itself. and This is where the all-purpose magic mantra comes in, which will serve you very well in working with fear and almost everything else, it's okay. can understand Dharma practice as being a path of opening. It's a path of opening to our bodies. We start usually with a sense of our bodies as being something very solid. And as the mind quiets, we begin to experience the body as particular sensations. And as we open even further, we experience the body as an energy flow. An energy system. We begin to feel it as an unwinding of the knots and tensions. Path of Dharma practice is opening the sense doors. As our mind gets quieter, we begin to perceive through the senses with much greater clarity and vividness we open to a whole range of emotion, open to a much greater range and depth of feeling, both pleasant and unpleasant. Feelings of love or gratitude or sadness or anger or rage or happiness or calm or peace. Our Dharma practice is not a reaching out for experience but a settling back into an openness, into that mirror-like quality of the mind, the mirror-like wisdom of the mind. And in that wisdom, we begin to understand the essential emptiness, insubstantiality of all arising phenomena. It's an endless display of appearances like reflections in a mirror. A phrase that Munindraji, my first Dharma teacher, used very often and just is embedded in my brain as a kind of refrain, but over the years has, has been very helpful as a reminder of how things are. He would say over and over again, empty phenomena rolling on, that all of our experience... And the mind and the body is empty phenomena rolling on, but there are some strongly conditioned patterns or tendencies in our mind. Patterns that we identify with, often and commonly, that seem to freeze our experience of this flow of phenomena. Something like a deer, a deer suddenly be, being frozen in the glare of a headlight. And in this freezing, we close down to this flow of experience. We're not open to it. And one of these conditioned patterns that when not understood and when not seen clearly works to freeze our mind in this way is the very deeply conditioned pattern of fear. Fear is an aspect of aversion. over these last weeks, a lot has been said about our friend aversion. It arises in many different ways in response to things we don't like. The things that are unpleasant. So sometimes aversion takes the form of striking out at things in anger. One of my favorite images of this. Was, was a little story in the News, the Times. This was quite a few years ago. But it was a story of a shop in Atlanta where people could bring their appliances that they were getting very frustrated with, their TVs and computers and VCRs that they couldn't program, and shoot at them. <laughs> and the shop had a whole arsenal of weapons, you know, and you could have your pick. Submachine guns. I just picture, you know, going into that shop and the satisfaction of (laughs) shooting the computer. (laughs) So anger, striking out, is one form of aversion. Another form of aversion is grieving for the loss of something or someone that's very close to us, that's dear to us. A third form of aversion is fear, when we contract and withdraw from the object that's unpleasant. So tonight I'd like to talk some about fear, about how it's conditioned in the mind, how we can work with it, the possibility of transforming it into wisdom, into freedom, I'm sure you've noticed in these weeks of practice, but as the meditation goes on, we very naturally come to edges or boundaries of what we feel comfortable with, of what's acceptable. And at these boundaries, these limits, edges of what we're familiar with, it's precisely at those boundaries that fears both large and small begin to reveal themselves. It might be fear of pain. We're okay with this much, and then it begins to get a little more intense and we can watch our mind pulling back from it. It might be fear of certain psychological or emotional states that are getting too intense, too uncomfortable. Could be fear of change. And sometimes quite perversely, fear of things not changing. It can be fear of the unknown. It often is fear of death. The problem for us is that all of these things, whether it's pain or different emotional states or the fact of change, the unknown, or death. All of these experiences are part of our lives. They actually are a part of what is true. So working with fears at these edges becomes an indispensable part of our practice if we want to open up to the totality of what is true in our experience. We first begin to see what it is that we're afraid of. That's our first investigation. We really take a look. Okay, where are the places in our experience that fears arise? For many people, I think for most of us, We can see it arise at different times in the experience of physical pain. There's a conditioned response to pain, the fear of discomfort and unwillingness to open to it. And how much this conditions our lives. How much this limits us in our lives. Remember after I first got introduced to meditation and practice in the Peace Corps in Thailand. I was very young. I was just out of college in my early 20s. And then went to India to look for a teacher and practiced in India. And I remember those days of just this tremendous enthusiasm and interest. And when I'd come back to this country to work or make some money, I couldn't wait to get back to India. And conditions were pretty hard. Not at all a comfortable situation. But somehow the the interest and the inspiration to practice was so strong and so overwhelming. I just notice over the years as I get older, India seems much less of an adventure to me now, <laughs> and mostly when I think of, I don't want to go there to practice, <laughs> you know, I can just see the mind kind of pulling back from that willingness, okay, the discomfort means nothing, no, it's of, it's of no consequence. So we really need to ask ourselves whether it's in relationship to going to India or not, but more, perhaps more relevant for all of us. To what degree is comfort the measure of what we do? Is that the basis for our decision? And do we not do things out of a fear of discomfort that we really value, that are important? Because right there we can see how fear begins to condition our life choices if we're not clear, if we don't see it with insight. The other side, the other extreme to avoid, it's not only kind of this attachment to comfort or to pleasure, the other extreme to avoid the Buddha talked about is avoiding this extreme of self-mortification. You know, in the India of the Buddhist time, There were many very intense ascetic practices. There was things called the bovine ascetic practice and the canine, where people thought that somehow by imitating the behavior of cows and dogs, that it would lead to enlightenment. And the descriptions are quite amazing, the degree to which uh, some people followed this. And the Buddha said, This is not going to lead to enlightenment. (laughs) This most likely will lead to bovine and canine rebirth. (laughs) But as I was thinking of this, and then I was trying to think, well, most of us are probably not so inspired by these practices. What would be the equivalent of self-mortification in this culture? I couldn't think of anything (laughs) I think we've gone so far, you know, to the extreme of attachment to comfort that probably what the Buddha considered as balanced acts of renunciation, we would think of <laughs> as intense self-mortification. <laughs> so how can we just look at this in our own practice now? How can we look at how the fear of pain or fear of discomfort is showing itself? We can look very simply at times of uh, simple shifts of posture. Now, when we shift our posture as a masking for pain, and it may not even be intense pain, it might even be a small discomfort and just the habit not even with strong mindful intention, just the habit of moving away from it. It would be helpful to really pay attention there. The Buddha talked of how movement masks dukkha. And as an interesting experiment, go through the day noticing why it is that you have a move. What initiates movement? And it's quite astounding to realize that almost all of our movements that we do, from the time we get up in the morning till the time we go to sleep, in one way or another, is to avoid some unpleasantness. To avoid an unpleasant feeling in the body. To avoid the feeling of hunger. To avoid some unpleasantness in the mind. So just to watch, not... Not at all with judgment, really to watch with interest how often it's the fear of discomfort, the fear of pain, which keeps us moving. So that's one experiment that we can do by way of understanding how this is operating in our lives. We can notice how our fear of discomfort or pain manifests for example in the sitting when we this is beginning to arise in our practice and we feel the body contracting contracting in response to pain as so if we're holding out against it we don't want to let it in or it could be feelings of self-pity you know, where we just feel sorry for ourselves or it could be bargaining mind You know, I'll watch you if you go away. And that's really not opening to it. That's being with it with an agenda. Or we can notice fear of anticipated pain. You know, we're sitting and there's a little discomfort, and really it's fine. It's not a problem. But then the mind starts thinking, well, in half an hour, (laughs) what is this going to feel like? And it builds up a whole story. In our minds, not... It's not what we're actually feeling in the moment. It builds up a whole story of what it will be like. And then we get afraid. Working with the edge of physical pain and discomfort is a wonderfully illuminating place to practice. Because it does bring us right up to the edge. And we can begin to see how fears start to arise. It brings us right to the edge of what we're willing to be with. And so our practice at that edge is, can I open? Can I soften? Can I relax? Can I let this in? Can I be with this? You know, an image that often comes to my mind when I think of this whole path and Buddhahood as the culmination. Think of us on this path of coming to various edges or boundaries of what we're willing to be with and then relaxing and opening further and we come to another edge, whether it's physical or emotional, another edge, another edge until I hit the ocean in the head. (laughs) And my imagination of the Buddha mind is just no edges, no boundaries at all. The mind that's completely open to the truth of whatever is arising. And it's such an inspiring vision of what's possible because the mind that has no edges, no boundaries, is fearless. And when I hold this image, it it inspires me because I see that every time I'm playing at the edge, it's one more step on the path to Buddhahood, on the path to awakening. So we can appreciate Practicing in that place as a way of playing a bit in this realm. You might undertake what one teacher called vow hours. He, he talked about it in terms of making a resolve for an hour, for an hour sitting, not to move. Whatever happens, let me die. I'm not going to move. And it's tremendously empowering and sometimes difficult. It was really difficult because this one teacher had the habit of starting the sitting with these vow hours. Then going off to his room, right off the meditation hall, could hear him kind of chomping on apples and reading newspapers. And we were all sitting there with these vow hours. <laughs> you know, it felt like... Nail through the knee and, (laughs) but it was, it was a great practice because it really showed first what it is, you know, that, that might arise and also all of the conditioning in the mind around it. But we take a slightly softer approach in that you could do this for any length of time. It need not be an hour. You could do it for 10 minutes or 15 minutes or a half hour, or an hour, where you take a period of time that feels doable to you, or maybe a little over the edge of doable, and make that resolve for whatever period of time. Let me sit without movement, let me see what happens. And it's a way really of coming to that edge and seeing the fear and going beyond the fear. As we begin to open to the painful or uncomfortable sensations in this way, we develop an insight into a very profound aspect of the teachings. And that is one meaning of the Pali word anatta, usually translated as selflessness, but it also means understanding that things are ungovernable. They're following their own laws. So we could sit down with the the resolve, let there be no pain. It's not up to our wish. Things happen according to conditions. If the conditions are present, the phenomena will arise. And as we sit with this, going beyond the conditioned response of fear, we begin to appreciate the selflessness, the ungovernableness of what's happening. It's very important practice for illness and death. Because in times of severe illness, times when we're dying, it's not a question of just changing position and the pain goes away. Things will be following their own laws, ungovernable, how will we be with it? Will we have trained ourselves in a situation like this where the mind can relax back, can open. Or will we be caught in fear? Often in the text, the Buddha spoke to people who were dying. And the the refrain was, was that even though your body may be filled with pain or discomfort, You can keep your mind in a place of peace. So we practice. It's one of the things we're practicing here. We can practice not only by opening to the discomfort, but also by turning our attention back to the awareness itself, which is knowing the pain. And to see whether the knowing, the awareness, is touched in any way. Does the particular reflection in the mirror condition the nature of the mirror in any way? It doesn't. The nature of the mirror stays the same. It doesn't matter what's reflected in it. In the same way, the nature of awareness, the nature of the mind, the nature of knowing remains untouched by whatever it is that's being known. Pleasant sensations, unpleasant sensations, like reflections in the mirror. So as we turn our attention back to the knowing, we begin to, to find this place of peace, this place of ease. just want to read a little bit from the story of Anathapindaka, who was uh, the chief... Lay disciple, one of the chief lay disciples of the Buddha, a very wealthy patron and very generous. And as he was sick and dying, he sent a message message to the Buddha and to Sariputta, the chief disciple, basically requesting a visit. And so this is this is what Sariputta's the conversation that Saraputta had with him, you know, in visiting him. And I like it because it sort of captures both the relative aspect of compassionate concern and the absolute perspective of liberating wisdom. So Saraputta comes to Anathapindaka and he says, I hope you are getting well, householder. I hope you are comfortable. I hope your painful feelings are subsiding and not increasing. And that they're subsiding and not increasing is apparent to you. So he just goes and is making that personal connection. So Anathapindaka answers, Venerable Sariputta, I'm not getting well. I am not comfortable. My painful feelings are increasing, not subsiding. The increase and not their subsiding is apparent just as if a strong man was splitting my head open with a sharp sword so too violent winds cut through my head i am not getting well just as if a strong man were tightening a tough leather strap around my head as a headband so too there are violent pains in my head i am not getting well it goes on and on describing you know the, the the racking pains of his of his dying process so then Sariputta says, and this is, this is where the teachings are so direct and straightforward. He said, and there's a long teaching here, which I won't read uh, in its entirety, but he said, then, householder, you should train yourself thus. I will not cling to this world, and there's a long list now, I will not cling to the body, I will not cling to the eye, to the ear, to the nose, to sense objects. And in not clinging, and this is where it's a very uh, telling point, and in not clinging, consciousness will not be dependent on the body, on the eye, on the ear, on experience. Consciousness will not be dependent on these things. And it's explained that consciousness is not dependent on them when it's not bound by craving not bound by wrong view. When we're not taking these things to be self, when we're not clinging, we experience the consciousness that's free in the experience of violent winds and racking pains and that whole description. Is this clear? This possibility even in times of severe illness, of death, that it's possible to rest in a place of freedom. But it takes training. And so much of what we're doing here, in much less severe situation for most of us, how are we when there's the pain in the knee or the pain in the back? Okay, so how can we work skillfully? How can we work skillfully with discomfort? I think it's important first to distinguish different kinds of pain. Sometimes pain is a danger signal. You put your hand in fire, burning, burning, burning. (laughs) If there's something to do about it, sometimes sometimes it's a danger signal and there's nothing to do. But sometimes it's a danger signal and... We can take appropriate action. I think it's important to recognize that. So when you're sitting and there's a lot of pain and the pain keeps increasing as you're going through the day, you know, and the knee, whatever, the back starts getting worse and worse and worse, it may well be that you're straining it. You need to back off. It may be that the pain is what I call Dharma pain. You know, you sit very intense, but then you get up and you're fine then it's no problem. Then it's the pain that's revealing itself to the practice, and we can play the edge. We can begin to work with it. How are we relating to the physical pain begins to reveal to us how we relate to other unpleasant situations in our lives. Because it shows us the pattern of how we relate to that which is disagreeable or unpleasant. Do we tighten? Do we contract? Do we defend against it? Can we practice being open, relaxing, letting it in? Fear arises when we come to the edge with respect to physical discomfort. Fear also arises as we begin coming to the edge of the boundaries of emotional or psychological discomfort. When we begin to touch the shadow side of our minds, you know, that range of feelings or emotions that for some reason is unacceptable, we don't often even recognize it, feelings perhaps of unworthiness, or jealousy, or abandonment, or failure, or whatever our own particular shadow side is, those those emotions that are so uncomfortable to us that we find it difficult, just as with physical pain, we find it difficult to open to, to be with, to allow. As long as there is fear and non-acceptance of these emotions, which are a part of us, which are arising, as long as there is are a fear of feeling them, a non-acceptance, we stay fragmented. We stay cut off from a part of ourselves. And through this great inner pressure to keep certain feelings away, we create a persona an image that we present to the world, to ourselves. It's as if we're looking for validation in other people's eyes, in how other people see us. I saw this very clearly on my early retreats with Upandita, when I saw how difficult it was for me to simply go in and give a completely straightforward report on my experience because there was this feeling in me, a deep feeling, of wanting some kind of approval. I wanted to say things in such a way which hopefully was somewhat connected to the truth, (laughs) but to present it in a way, you know, that he would approve. Of course, this was all misguided. Because my reference point was what I thought would be acceptable. Instead of the reference point being, simply say how it is. But as my practice went on, I became more and more comfortable with a wider range of experience. Even the unpleasant, uncomfortable, unlikable parts. At one point, I went into an interview and I was describing something. And I just listed this whole range of defilements in my mind. In that experience, you know, so I was saying something, and he said, oh, yeah, there's greed and aversion and this and that, and it's, <laughs> it's like a shopping list of defilements. And I just started to laugh, and it was the first time, because usually I went and terrified. <laughs> but I, it was so funny to me that out of, out of this innocuous little experience, he could extract so many colosses in the mind. And it was amazing, it was like that laughter broke something in me. And it just became so much easier to simply be accepting of whatever the mind mindset, whatever the emotion might happen to be. I got to a point, much more so, of actually taking delight in seeing the defilements in the mind because I would rather see them than not see them. with the interest in seeing what was true far outweighed trying to cover something up. And so this is, this is part of our coming to the edge of what we're willing to be with and saying, yes, I can open to this, I can be with it, even when it's unpleasant, even when there are difficult emotions. when you look at either our own lives or our society, how much of what we do personally and of what our culture produces and consumes is all done in this huge effort not to feel certain things? For example, not to feel boredom. How much, how much is produced in our society? so that we never feel a moment of boredom or sadness or loneliness or whatever our own particular fear might happen to be. Pascal had a wonderful remark, French philosopher and mathematician. He said, most of the problems in the world would be solved if people could learn to sit quietly in a room. So you're doing your part. (laughs) Because learning to sit quietly in a room, we begin to get less defensive about what it is that's arising. We say, yes, I can be with that feeling. I can be with that emotion. The fear of it does not have to drive me to action. It's actually easier to open and feel it. One image, which is timely for this season of the year, as a way of working with the painful emotions, you know that we might not be al- not al- being allowing ourselves to feel or to open to. Sometimes I think of these strong emotions of it might be anger or rage or unworthiness, whatever, whatever it is. Think of it as, think of each of these emotions as kids in Halloween costumes. You know, so the kid comes to the door as a ghost or a pirate. Or when you open the door, do you get frightened? No, (laughs) That's, that's just a little kid in a costume. Well, all of these emotions that are creating such big stories in our minds are essentially empty, transparent, insubstantial, but we give them a tremendous amount of power. But if you think of them as just coming, it's it's the angry ghost or it's the (laughs) murderous pirate or whatever, see it as a kid in Halloween costume and see how your relationship to it changes. Oh, it's okay. Come on in, (laughs) have a piece of chocolate. we begin to open more to the unpleasant emotion, just as we open to the unpleasant physical sensation or to the difficult psychological states, as we can relax and open and let down that wall of fear, fearful response, we begin to deeply see the transparency and the insubstantiality of these phenomena we really see that there's nothing much there. It's like cloud formations in the open, empty sky. You know, there can be big, big thunderclouds and conditions come together and they form and then conditions change and they disperse all by themselves. So all the storms of our emotion are like those clouds in the sky. Can we recognize that and recognize the very nature of the sky itself? the sky-like quality of awareness of our own minds. So we see fear arising when we get to the edge of what's comfortable to us physically. We see fear arising when we come to the boundary or edge of which emotions are comfortable. Fear also arises as we see more and more clearly the truth of impermanence, the truth of change, that things are arising and dissolving every moment, there really is no security in changing phenomena because it all keeps arising and dissolving. It's interesting to notice as you pay attention to this flow of change All the strategies our minds have for not opening to that, for not simply allowing the flow of change to happen, but trying to fix or hold or keep from changing. Again, another little experiment you can make in practice. In each of your sittings, take a few minutes Take a few minutes of non-doing. You're not doing anything. You're not trying to watch the breath, and you're not trying to note or anything. Just non-doing. And don't try to not do. <laughs> just non-doing. And in the just sitting back, relaxing, not doing anything. In that non-doing, in that undistracted non-doing, what will become very apparent. Is that everything is coming and going by itself? That we don't have to push the river. The river is flowing. In those moments of non doing, the flow of change, the flow of experience becomes so spontaneous and so natural because that is how things are happening. Sometimes, you know, we speak in Vipassana circles and Buddhist circles of letting things go. Just let it go. But I think that phrase can be a little misleading because letting it go almost implies doing something to let it go. And really, in this space of non doing, Maybe a better phrase would be just let it flow. It's flowing by itself. It's arising and passing by itself. Let it follow its own nature. As I said earlier in the talk, sometimes we have this perverse fear, not only of things changing in the constant, disappearing of experiences and circumstances and people. But we can also have this fear of things not changing. You know, we're in some uncomfortable space. We're in some painful situation. And we just get this notion, this is going to last forever. And we become afraid of that. The whole universe changes, but not this. You know, we become fixated and it can condition a lot of fear. This fear of impermanence taken to a deeper emotional and psychological level often manifests as fear of death, a big change on one level. And what's interesting is that in conventional society, very often reflecting or talking about death is its a little taboo. People think that you're being morbid or you know, why would you want to think about dying? And yet the Buddha said, this is something we should reflect on every single day. Quite an opposite take on things because it's true. I came across something which I... Had not seen for quite a while for many years you most of you probably remember i don't know this is 15 years ago 20 years ago the uh, carlos castaneda books done one so this i just i happened to, to come up with this uh so i was looking through some of these notes he had a wonderful piece on the power of reflection reflecting on death So this is Carlos talking about Don Juan. Don Juan asked me to tell him what had been the most natural reaction I had in moments of stress or frustration and disappointment before I became an apprentice. He said that his own reaction had been wrath. I told him that mine had been self-pity. Nor the conditioned reaction to times of difficulty. So Don Juan says, although you were not aware of it, You had to work your head off to make that feeling a natural one. By now, there is no way for you to recollect the immense effort that you needed to establish self-pity as a feature of your island. Self-pity bore witness to everything you did. It was just at your fingertips, ready to advise you. Death is considered by a warrior to be a more amenable advisor, which can also be brought to bear witness on everything one does just like self-pity or wrath. Obviously, after an untold struggle, you had learned to feel sorry for yourself. But you can also learn in the same way to feel your impending end. And thus, you can learn to have the idea of your death at your fingertips. As an advisor, self-pity is nothing in comparison to death. Focus your attention on the link between you and your death without remorse or sadness or worrying. Focus your attention on the fact that you don't have time and let your acts flow accordingly. Let each of your acts be your last battle on earth. Acts have power, especially when the person acting knows that these acts are his last battle. There's a strange consuming happiness in acting with the full knowledge that whatever one is doing may very well be one's last act on earth. How often do we really hold that in our minds, and let that in? The Buddha talked of what it is that conditions fear of death. Now, why is it so deep? And who is it that fears it? And as with so many of the teachings you know, after he lays it out, it seems so obvious. It seems like so much common sense. And yet we often don't take the time to really have thought it through carefully. And so he said, those people who fear death are those who are attached, extremely attached to pleasures of the senses. Well, It's obvious. <laughs> if we're attached to pleasures of the senses, death will be fearful. He said people who are very attached to the body will fear death. People who have not done many good or wholesome acts in their lives will fear death. And those people who have not come to some understanding of the Dharma, of the truth of our lives, And likewise, he said, the Buddha went on, those people who will not have fear of death are those who are not overly attached to pleasures of the senses, who are not overly attached to the body, who have done many good and wholesome acts, and who have really understood in a deep and transforming way the dharma. I think it's important for us as we go through the day to recognize those moments when our minds are free of desire, are free of attachment. There are many moments we don't have to wait, you know, for twenty or thirty years of practice, and maybe, you know, we get a single glimpse. There are moments through the day when our minds are open, are at rest, are not grasping, are not clinging. To the degree that we can recognize that as it happens, it's what Buddhadasa, the great Thai monk of the last century, he called it temporary Nibbana. It's like he defined Nibbana as the cooled out mind. So it's when our mind is cooled from from the fire of wanting, of clinging, of grasping, And why it's important to learn to recognize those many moments during the day is because we then have the direct experience in those moments of the absence of fear. You say, yes, I know what this is like by paying attention. And the more we recognize it, the easier access we have to that space. So that space of openness so that space of non-grasping, not wanting, not attaching. Because all of those things are the condition for fear. So we've talked of the different things we might be afraid of in our lives where fear arises. Fear of physical pain, fear of the most strong, unpleasant, difficult emotions, fear of change, of impermanence, or of things not changing. Fear of death. So the question is, how do we work now with fear when it does arise? Because it will. We will come to the boundaries, the edges of what we're comfortable with. Fear will arise. How do we work with it skillfully? How can we transform it into wisdom? The key to working with fear is becoming mindful of the fact that it's arising become accepting of the fear itself. And this is where the all-purpose magic mantra comes in, which will serve you very well in working with fear and almost everything else. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. The fear is here. It's okay. Let me feel it. Rather than contract in fear about fear. We can learn to open to it. It's okay to feel the fear. We don't have to contract. We don't have to tighten. And an image which might help you find that space of acceptance of fear is the image of how you might be with a frightened child. Now if there were a child that was, that was very frightened, how would you be with him or her? Probably you would be very supportive, very present. It's okay. You wouldn't be condemning the kid for having it. And you wouldn't be judging it. And hopefully you wouldn't say, oh, you're not afraid. <laughs> you're not afraid. Yes, it's okay. Be with it. And it's interesting to me that somehow we know this intuitively. You know, and we would do that spontaneously with a, with a child. And yet we find it so hard to have that same attitude when the fear arises within ourselves. But we can practice it if we remember. It's okay, let me feel it. Because in the acceptance of it, we allow the fear to, in Buddhist terminology, we allow the fear to self-liberate. We allow it to decondition. It's there like a cloud arising in the sky. We're accepting of it. And as conditions change, the fear disappears. It's very workable. can let go of expectations and models of how we think our practice should be and realize and appreciate that it's precisely at the times when fear arises, that is the edge that we want to be at. Because right there, we can open further. We can take another step on this journey, on this path to Buddhahood, to awakening. And there are so many stories of the great teachers in Asia sometimes actually putting themselves in situations of fear. You know, I love the story. There's Ajahn Man, who is kind of the grandfather of the Thai forest tradition, and this amazingly deep and powerful monk in his training. He has an autobiography, which is quite fantastic, or biography actually. He describes part of his training where he would put himself right in the path of tigers. You know, he lived in the in the Thai jungle and he would go out to where the tiger, tigers would normally walk and sit and meditate. <laughs> That's something. <laughs> I mean, these are tigers. <laughs> you know, they eat people. <laughs> but he was so determined to really confront the force of fear within himself. And as so many of these stories go, he and many of his disciples (laughs) who he taught this as a method, (laughs) they were always untouched. And you know, some some great power of Dharma protection. But it was just an inspiring, at least an image, if not something to actually do. Of not being, of not pulling back from those situations, you know, where fear is arising, that we can actually take inspiration. Yeah, this is a good place to work. Can I see? Can I open? Can I be with it? At these times, great courage is needed. And courage here is not an absence of fear. Courage does not mean absence of fear. It means an acceptance of fear. We can be with a very difficult situation and fear can be arising and the courage is that willingness. Okay, the fear is here. Let me accept the fear. Let me stay here with what's happening. Well, this is where great energy comes in our practice. In situations perhaps... Somewhat less fearsome than tigers in the jungle, you could try sitting a little longer. What would that be like? Sleeping a little less. You know, take a, a, a vow: sitting for however long, even if it's fifteen minutes or half an hour, I won't move. You now it's like pushing the edge, seeing what happens. But courage is also needed to understand when things are too much, when we have to retreat a little bit to find our balance, because at times the suffering is too overwhelming or it's coming too fast and we don't have the power, we don't have the strength. And so we also need to understand, yes, this is the time to pull back. We need to have courage on both sides. So we accept the fear. It's okay. We work with it. We can also investigate the very nature of awareness, the nature of the fear itself, seeing it as just another empty cloud formation in this open sky of awareness, not building a whole persona through identification with the fear of, oh, now I'm such a fearful person and it's going to take 30 years of therapy to unwind all the conditioning. And we just build a whole story. We see right through that into the empty nature, of the feeling itself. At one point, I was going through a lot of fear in my practice and I was going on and on and on. I was teaching with Sharon uh, Salzburg at the time. And at one point she turned to me and she said, it's just a mind state, you know? And it's something I, of course, have said a thousand times to people, but sometimes you hear something and it's it's the right moment to hear it. Oh yeah, this whole big story I had been telling myself about what kind of person I was. It's just a mind state, not any different than a sound or a sensation. Dalai Lama had wonderful words as always to say about working with fear somebody asked him how can one work with deep fears he said if you have some fear of pain or suffering you should experience whether there is anything you can do about it if you can there is no need to worry If you cannot do anything about it, then there's also no need to worry. (laughs) No need to worry. Just to be with it. But the last piece I'll just mention tonight briefly in working with fear, there's acceptance of it, there's actually using it, being at that edge, taking the energy from that kind of practice, looking into its empty nature, its insubstantial nature, and understanding that both metta, loving-kindness, and trust are the antidotes to fear. And in fact, the Buddha taught the metta-sutta. He first taught loving-kindness to a group of monks who were living in a forest filled with fear coming from being in the forest. And he told them to practice method, to practice love and kindness, because when we genuinely tap in to that place of goodwill, of friendliness, when we are genuinely coming from that place, fear dissolves. I'll close with a short haiku poem, which is very appropriate uh, to this fall season, highlighting the importance of trust, trust in our practice, trust in our Buddha nature, trust in the Dharma of our unfolding path. It says, simply trust. Don't the leaves flutter down just like that. That's such a wonderful image. You don't see the leaves grabbing onto the tree. The wind blows and the leaves flutter down just like that. Can we be with our own unfolding experience in just that way? Let's sit for a couple of minutes.